You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Well, if we haven't met before, my name is Craig, and I'm one of the pastors here. And it's really a joy to have you with us. Thanks for coming. Um, You know, we are just starting a new study. So if you are new here, even if this is your first time, uh, you came at a great time because we're just kind of launching into something new. Uh, Many of you uh, last week got these uh, Ephesians. We're teaching through the book of Ephesians. And so we have these scripture journals. Uh, We'll have some more for you next week. They were just grabbed all up, and, uh, and so at the first service today, but uh, from last week, those that were left over. So at any rate, we'll have these for you next week if you'd like to get one of those, but feel free to take some notes in there, and hopefully you looked at the text this week and maybe marked it up there in your journal, and uh, hopefully God's prepared your heart as we jump in. Well, today we're going to be looking uh, at Ephesians 3, uh, I'm sorry, Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, and this passage Well, uh, it's something. It is one of the most lofty statements of worship in the entire New Testament. It's been called a, quote, avalanche of praise to God in one long, breathless sentence. So in the English Bible, it's verses 3 through 14. Uh, in, in the English, there weren't originally verse numbers when this was written in Greek, but the original uh, was Greek, and it is 202 Greek words, one sentence. So verses 3 through 14 is one sentence, if you can believe that. And uh, just a pro tip, if you're in middle school or high school, and your English teacher says you are writing run-on sentences, you can just say, I'm being biblical, uh, and my writing mentor is the Apostle Paul. Now, you will, you will fail, but, uh, but at least you can take some comfort that you are only doing what the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to do by write a hefty sentence. So we're going to read this sentence, uh, to, and uh, verses 3 through 14, uh, this is God's holy word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, 
having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now that's a sentence. That is a serious sentence. One author said, I can't imagine Paul sitting at a desk and writing that sentence. He had to have been pacing the floor, his arms waving as he is speaking these words for his stenographer to strain as he records every word that's flowing out of Paul's heart. It's a marathon sentence that is praise to God. Look at it. It starts with, blessed be God, and it finishes with, uh, to the praise of his glory. It's a statement of praise, sometimes called a doxology, which means uh, a, a word of praise, a declaration about what God has done. And this kind of exuberant praise, which he opens the article with, uh, opens the letter with, rather, it's a bit surprising when we think about what we found out last week, that Paul is writing this from a jail cell. That as he is imprisoned, likely in Rome at this time, he is delivering this message to the church of why God is worthy of all praise for what he has done, is doing, and will do. And it's got to be an encouragement to the church at Ephesus. As we learned last week, they are likely living on the margins of their society, for they live in a large cosmopolitan town, city, uh, that is known for housing the temple of Diana. Uh, It was one of the seven wonders of the world where people would come and worship this goddess. The church could easily feel insignificant. I mean, they're embedded, hidden away in this deeply pagan environment where idol worship is the norm. So Paul begins by explaining to them here the big story of God, what God is accomplishing for his purpose in the world. And he's showing them the gracious plan of Christ, which has got to blow them away because it includes them. Even them, the Gentiles, have been brought in to the great plan of God. So if you live in Ephesus all week long, you are made aware of the glory of the Roman Empire. I mean, uh, the, the mantra that everyone was required to speak was that Caesar is Lord. So you lived under the rule of this glorious ruler who, who uh, uh, was the strongest ruler of the world, the Roman Empire, the most powerful force to be dealt with. You lived in this great city which was ruled in the heavenlies by Diana. So ruled on earth by Caesar, ruled in the heavenlies by Diana, and Paul says that's not the way it really is. The way it really is is that God is bringing heaven and earth together in Jesus Christ, and God is doing something from eternity past through the work of Jesus into eternity future that is the real reality. 
See, the, rea- the reality is that they live daily aware of a, what could be called a pseudo-reality, that Caesar rules, that Diana has power, that she is worthy, and many other false beliefs. And yet here, the triune God is saying to them, I have done something, I am doing something, and I will do something that defines you and the purpose of my people. And so he's wanting them to wake up to the reality that is so easy for us to miss. In the neighborhood my wife and I previously lived in, uh, there was a long stretch of road at one part of the neighborhood. And uh, because it was a long stretch of road with no stop signs, it was easy to, um, if you weren't paying careful attention, it was easy to speed. I mean, it was easy to get going faster than the speed limit on this open road. And sort of in the middle of these multiple blocks, um, there were several families. We didn't know them. We didn't live in that part of the neighborhood. But there were several families that would gather out in their front yard. And kind of like all the families with little kids would would gather in their yard, and in the, the, as you drove by, the, the driveway was just filled with a, a gaggle, a herd, a flock of kiddos just out there, tons of kids out all the time. And what they did was they put a sign out in the roadway, and maybe you've seen this sign before. It said, slow down, children at play. The purpose was to make you aware that you could carelessly be moving too fast, and if you are and not paying attention, then you might miss something very valuable, a child running into the street. I think there's a sign before this passage which tells us, slow down, God at work. God at work. God wants us to pause the narrative of our culture that we live in day in and day out, the patterns of our lives, the beliefs of our culture. wants us to slow down and stop and look at a real reality. We need to be reminded. We need to pay attention lest we be duped by the story of the world. God's unseen work described in these verses have been labeled by a, a, a commentator named Klein Snodgrass. He, he labeled this the real reality. And that phrase has stuck with me. What is the real reality? And he says that we live in a world that lives in pseudo-reality because our world doesn't get God. Our world doesn't get God's people. But we are to gather and to hear his word and to believe his word and to sing truths about what he has done. And we gather weekly to do that, to be reminded, to even at times be startled into the real reality of what the universe is all about and what's really going on, which we are so uh, easy, which we so easily miss, that as we read God's Word and as we were at worship together, we are reoriented to reality. And the reality is what we just read, that God from eternity past has chosen a people for himself, that he has redeemed them in Jesus Christ, that he is building them together, Jew and Gentile, all types of people brought together around the purpose of Jesus, around the person of Jesus and that he is spreading his good news throughout the planet, and one day will return to make all things new. That's the real story of God and the truth of what he is doing. 
You know, he made the point, Snodgrass did, that we need to come together and be reminded of God's word and take our identity from what he's done because we live with a pseudo-reality so often throughout the week. And he said the persecuted church has always gotten this much more than the comfortable Western church gets this, the need to come together for reorientation because we have been disoriented all week long. But he said another group that really gets this is the black church. He said the black church really gets the need to come and be reoriented and rooted in real reality. The black church in this country, at least in the South, birthed out of chattel slavery, which is a miracle. Um, The black church is the greatest miracle imaginable that people who were, uh, had people, uh, other people rule over them could look past the hypocrisy of their testimony and could listen to the word they spoke about Jesus and believe in him. And then, having believed in Jesus, were forbidden to worship with white brothers and sisters and so were left to begin their own church. And what happened in that church as the slaves would worship together is that they would gather and remind themselves that their daily reality wasn't the real reality of what God had done for them. Yes, the suffering was real. Yes, the dehumanizing was real. Yes, they were not treated as image bearers or believed to be oftentimes image bearers of God. And yet they gathered together to declare in Christ we are free to sing and worship together. We are chosen to by the Father, and we are incorporated into his people, joined, maybe not physically, but joined spiritually with all our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we worship the God who will one day return and bring justice, who will one day return so that righteousness rules over all, so that we'll one day return so that all his people, whoever they are, will be gathered together in his worship. And that tradition, starting out of slavery, working its way through the Jim Crow era, even today, even up until today, is, is, a, is a coming together and reorienting and saying, out there in the world, they may say this, they may do this, there may be a pseudo-reality, but among the people of God, God is writing a true story, and we are part of it. And regardless of our race, And regardless of our background, we all need that experience. We need the reorienting that he is talking about here. So I'm going to walk us through the passage. I wanted to take some time, which I've done, to explain how the passage works. That it is a declaration of the story of God to reorient the people of God to what's really going on so that we take our identity and our purpose from the work of God and not from anything that our world or our culture would tell us. He starts with uh, announcing that you've been blessed. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So he starts by telling this marginalized group in a world that certainly didn't get them, uh, that, you know what, you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. You may not be a citizen of Rome. Uh, You may not be following the dictates of the culture and worshiping the goddesses and gods 
uh, but you are blessed with every spiritual blessing. Now, when he uses the word spiritual, he's not contrasting it with material. He's not saying there are no material blessings, just spiritual blessings. It's rather spiritual as an adjective of blessing, meaning blessings from the Spirit, blessings by the Spirit, blessings through the Spirit, however you would want to say that. So he's saying you have all of these spiritual blessings, and they are in the heavenly places. Well, what are the heavenly places? Is that heaven? Is that the abode of God, that you have all of these blessings in the abode of God? Uh, The NIV helps us by translating it heavenly realms. So you have all these blessings in the heavenly realms. Well, this term is not used, I don't think anywhere in the New Testament, but at least not by Paul for sure. It's only used in the book of Ephesians. So if we want to know what does he mean by we're blessed in the heavenly places, because this is the topic sentence. We've got to understand verse 3, because it's the topic sentence for all the blessings he's about to talk about, that we are blessed in the heavenly realm. So what are the heavenly realms? Well, we're just going to look. We're going to read every time that that is used in the book of Ephesians. So first of all, it's right here. So the heavenly realms are the places, is the, is the, is the dimension, we could say, the dimension where we are blessed. Okay, that doesn't quite clear it up, but verse uh, 20 in chapter 1, it says this, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Okay, so the heavenly places are the place where Jesus has been enthroned forever and ever. How about chapter 2, verse 6? And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Okay, so it's the place of our blessing. It's the place where Christ is enthroned and ruling. And it's the place that we have presently, spiritually, been raised up with him. So we're raised with Christ in heavenly places. Chapter 3, verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might, be, uh, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So what's being talked about here is rulers and authorities that uh, look on, that ultimately are opposed to God, but look on and see his wisdom through the church. So the spiritual places are, the, the heavenly places rather, are the places where we are blessed. It's the dimension where Christ is seated and ruling and reigning. It's the place where we rule and reign with him. And it's the place where God is declaring, announcing, advertising, demonstrating his profound wisdom by bringing Jew and Gentile together, one in Christ, a people of God from all backgrounds, uh, from all classes, brought together and united in Jesus, reconciled to God and to one another. And here's the final use of the term, which will define that it's clearly not heaven we're talking about, and that would be Ephesians 6, 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So the heavenly places are the place where we are blessed, place where Jesus has been enthroned, the place where we rule and reign with him, the place where the victory of Christ through the church is announced to the powers, and the place where we stand firm against the assault of evil powers. Uh, So it is a place, a spiritual dimension, a spiritual realm where Christ has defeated the enemy, where we rule and reign with him, and are a part of his program, building the church to declare his power. 
That, that's what it is, and that is very amazing, beyond what we could imagine. This is how Klein Snodgrass describes it. He says, in other words, the heavenly realms does not refer to a physical location, but to a spiritual reality, God's world in which believers have a share and which evil forces still seek to attack. It includes all of the believer's relation to God and the church's experience. It is a way of saying that this world is not the only reality. A larger reality exists where Christ is already exalted as Lord, where believers participate in this victory, and where spiritual forces are opposed. Though believers live physically on this earth, they receive, get this, they receive spiritual resources and their identity from a higher plane. The spiritual blessings given to Christians are enjoyed in the present life for they derive from what God has done in Christ in the heavenlies. So what the, the blessings we have in verse 3 saying this, Jesus has already died and risen, and if you believe, you've been raised with him. He's already ruling and reigning, and there's one day when that's going to be manifest physically. He's going to return and uh, make all things new. Heaven and earth are going to join. But in the meantime, that's still a defining reality for you. They're not a marginalized people in Ephesus, forgotten, passed over by the world while Caesar reigns and Diana is on her throne. No, Jesus is on the throne. We're ruling and reigning with him. He has defeated the powers and is rubbing it in their face by building a church which shows he has done the impossible, uniting people, forgiving them, granting them a new identity, and he has called us to live out this purpose in our lives so that our future, the new heavens and new earth, has invaded the past, I mean the present, so that it is now our reality, that we're not yet in the new heavens and new earth, but it's already a reality that we can taste and is to define how we live. That's what he's saying. You've got all these blessings. And then what he's going to do is he's going to give us three blessings. That's the rest of the passage. You have all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly spiritual dimension, and here's three of them and how they work them out. He didn't say it's the top three, but it'd be hard to think of three better than this. So they might be the top three. I don't know. But here they are. Number one, chosen by the Father. Verse 4, here's a spiritual blessing. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, this is what theologians call the doctrine of election. They call it the doctrine of election because the verb can be translated choose or it can be translated elect. You were elected before the foundation of the world. So Paul, he didn't mess around. I mean, he, he basically says here, uh, hi, Ephesians, I'm Paul. Everybody's a blessed. Uh, if you're a believer, you're blessed in the heavenly places. Let's start with this controversy. You're all elected in Christ if you are a believer. So he just wades into a topic which is of great controversy in the more recent history of the church. But please note, he starts there, and he is not embarrassed to tell them they're chosen by God. He's not sheepish about it. He isn't whispering about it. So no Western Christian who says, I must have my say, is offended. 
He just comes out and says, if you know Jesus, it's because he chose you. He starts with that. He is celebrating it because here election is not a topic for debate. It is a motive for worship. This is what he's saying. When you think that God, before the foundation of the world, chose you, it causes you to stop in awe and wonder and respond to him with a heart full of gratitude and worship. He chose us, verse 3, in Christ. He doesn't explain it. He doesn't balance it out. He doesn't soften the blow in any way. He just states it, not as an argument, but as a fact. Before the world was created, God chose us. Let that sink in for a moment. That's what he says to people who may wonder about who they are, who may wonder about what their purpose is, who may question where is God. He starts with, he chose us in him. Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, uh, which is called the message, uh, I love the way he paraphrases this sentence. He writes, the message says, long before he laid out, laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind. He settled on us as the focus of his love. Before the world was created, he's saying, God set you, us, as the focus of his love. That's where he starts. We have every spiritual blessing chosen by the Father. Well, why did he choose us? He doesn't say, he doesn't tell us, but he does tell us the goal of why he chose us. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Some people say, well, you know, if if you believe in election, then if you start teaching that kind of stuff, people are going to do whatever they want because they're going to say, well, I'm chosen, so what difference does it make? That's a total misunderstanding of election. He says he chose you so you'd be holy. The purpose of election, the purpose of choosing, is that God would have a people that would believe in him, not only that, but would be transformed by him so that they would reflect him in a dark world, so that we're chosen so that we bear fruit, so that we more and more, oftentimes it's very slow progress, but more and more we become like Jesus. More and more we reflect God. Little by little, we are becoming a people together that reflect the glory of the Lord. That's the purpose. We're chosen for holiness. He goes on to say in the next verse that, verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. So he said he, he predestined, that is he determined beforehand, he determined beforehand that we would be adopted as his children. Adopted. Now he doesn't use the word children here, and I need to explain this because it could be confusing, because at least half the room is female. Um, he says that we, he chose us, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Now, followers of Jesus Christ are obviously male and female, but the reason that Paul uses sons here rather than sons and daughters, it's an inclusive term, but the reason he uses sons is because in this culture, uh, sons had rights, and the culture where he's writing had rights that daughters didn't have. Sons had rights of inheritance, and that's what he's about to talk about. 
that we have an inheritance in Christ, and only sons had that. So that's why here we're described, men and women described as sons of God. It's in no way a demeaning of women. It's an elevating in that culture to the status of heir, which they wouldn't have. And it wasn't just sons. It was the firstborn son that primarily received the inheritance. And Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, the Bible says, and we are in him. He's the first, and we are men and women in him, joint heirs. We have a joint inheritance as sons of God with Jesus. So that's important to know. This is uh, why that language is the way that it is. So God wants us to feel this reality that we are adopted by him, that he chose us, that he planned us to be his children. Listen, there is no greater privilege than this. And that's why verse 6 says, he chose us, he predestined us to be adopted, brought into his family. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Why does he do that? So that we stand back and say, your grace is beyond what I could imagine that we praise, that we worship. This is about worshiping the Lord with all of our lives, certainly with our tongues and song and in word, but with all of our lives. A life that responds in praise. Why? Because we are blown away with the reality that the God of the universe chose us and that he predetermined that we would be adopted as his sons, and now we relate to him as father. There is a care and a provision that he provides for us. There's an intimacy and a nearness and an accessibility we have to God because he is our father. This stuff will change how you view God and how you view you and how you view why you are on planet earth breathing his air. Chosen, what a great privilege. And if we step back and say, it's not just that I'm saved by grace, that God sent Jesus by grace. It's that before anything even got started on the planet, he had already set his loving affection on me. We step back, and our conclusion is, I have nothing to do with my salvation. It is all of God's grace. Therefore, with our lives, let us live in praise of his glorious grace. Redeemed by the Son, that's the next one. So the first blessing is we're chosen by the Father. Secondly, we are redeemed by the Son, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Redemption. The word redemption is a word that had to do uh, with freedom. And it had to do with freedom from slavery, being freed from slavery because of a payment. So certainly in Ephesus, they would have had slave markets. A high percentage of, um, of people in the Roman Empire were slaves. Uh, it functioned a bit differently as slavery did uh, in our country. But, uh, but nonetheless, many people were slaves. And so there were slave markets where slaves were bought their freedom was purchased at various points and that sort of thing. But that's probably not what the background here is. Redemption clearly ties to slavery. But what's probably in view here is the background of the story of God in Exodus. It was in Exodus is the great redemption event of the Old Testament. The great redemption event of the Old Testament is that God comes and frees his people from Pharaoh's rule. And, and what he does is he judges Pharaoh and the people of Egypt, but he frees his people. And the way he frees them is he says they are to take, it's Passover time, they're to take the blood 
of a Passover lamb and put it on their doorpost. And when the angel, you know, comes by their house, they will all be spared while judgment will come to the Egyptians' houses, for they were not protected by the blood of the Passover lamb. And so with that story in view, Paul says here, in him we have redemption through his blood. You want to talk about grace, not the blood of killing an innocent lamb, but God himself. This idea is in no religion, no other religion but Christianity, that God himself would become man, which is mind-blowing in itself, and would not only become human, but then would die willingly as a sacrifice for those who hated him, for those who rejected him, for those who broke his law, for those who turned their back, for those who said, we don't care what your standards are, we will be a law unto ourselves. That he came and that he died for them, and he said, you have been bought back to God, so to speak. Your sins have been forgiven because of the blood of Jesus, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon it. Paul can't come up with enough language. This is wealthy grace. This is the riches of God's grace that he would come and bleed for you. This is the lavishness that he has poured upon you. Let this define who you are. Let it define the glory of God and let it define the own dignity of your life and the value of your own life as well, that God would shed his blood for you. It's primarily a statement about God's grace, but it's also a statement about his love for us. It's amazing what he has done for us. Do you know that kind of, do you experience, do you ever experience the lavish grace of God where you think his grace for me is indescribable? What Jesus did for me is beyond what I can, well, beyond what I can fully understand. That's the experience he wants us to have. That's, a, that's how he wants us, that's the story he wants us to live by. He goes on to say that the purpose of all this is that all things would be unified in Christ. So he goes to say in verse 9, all of this happens, we're redeemed, the people of God, uh, because he is making known to us the mystery of his will. The mystery is usually mystery in the book of Ephesians has to do with Jew and Gentile being brought together. It's the church. The mystery of his will, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of times, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So he said, Jesus came and he redeemed you because here's the reason. Here's the great mystery which he's revealed to us. In the fullness of times, which is yet to occur, in the fullness of times, he is going to unite all things in Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth are going to be united in Jesus. And we are going to be a part of that. So in other words, what he's saying, everything that was broken Everything that was shattered in the fall, in Genesis 3, in the garden, everything that was shattered will be united in Christ. Everything that was disordered by Adam and Eve's rebellion, starting with their relationship, their family relationship, their relationship to nature, their relationship to God, primarily their relationship to their work, their relationship to their everything in their life, was disordered by the rebellion. But Jesus is going to reorder everything in perfect shalom, perfect harmony under his reign. That's why we were redeemed, he says here. He did this for forgiveness of your sins. You bet, he said it. 
Because he loves you, you bet. But ultimately something bigger than that. Imagine something in the universe bigger than me. Wow. Bigger than you. So that he will bring all things together in Christ, in a new creation. That all the pain will be healed. All the chaos will be made peace and order. All the injustice and suffering will be judged and made right. And we are in him now. That is coming in the day of the future. But the reality of that is already our taste today. That we're to live in light of that day, what he's going to do, make all things right. So we're to live, he's saying, you're redeemed so that you live daily with the future hope of this restoration when uh, the plan for the fullness of times to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and earth. Scotty Smith, in writing about Ephesians, wrote this about the verse that we just read. He says, the gospel isn't primarily about us going to heaven when we die, but about heaven coming to earth after death is destroyed. Our Father will bring to completion every good thing he has begun in us and in his creation. At the right time, God sent Jesus as the sacrifice for our sins. In the fullness of time, he will send him back to finish making all things new. Until then, look at these words, sonship and heirship define us. And we are certain that God is at work in all things to accomplish his redemptive purposes in Jesus. So he's saying the end game of redemption is the renewal of all things, the uniting of all things in Christ in heaven and earth. That's the end game. That's where everything is moving. So in the meantime, he says, what defines us? Sonship. Even if you're a woman, based on how I described it early, that is earlier, that we are heirs, that we are inheriting this glorious, uh, this glorious renewed creation where all things are made new, where there's perfect harmony, where, where all people in Christ and all of existence flourishes and is fruitful as it was mid, originally meant to be. That's what we're inheriting. So let that define you now, is what he's saying. You're redeemed for that day, so let that inform how we live this day. Third and final benefit, chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, sealed with the Spirit. So it's all members of the triune God. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the seal. What does it mean that we're sealed? Well, uh, seals were used in several ways. One way is to authenticate the work, so to speak, of, of, uh, of a ruler. So like a king had a seal, a signet, could be a ring, could be a stamp, but a signet that he would put on a document, a wax seal that would say, this is mine, this is my work. So it showed authenticity, it showed ownership. Uh, another way it showed ownership is that in a way cattle were sealed, similar language was used, I mean, we'd use the word branded, um, sadly slaves were as well, to, to show who owned them who own the cattle. So if you have the Spirit, what it says is that's a sign that you're owned by God, that he's made you his child and that he's given you his Spirit, and that's the testimony that you are his. Verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance? So if you have the Spirit, it's the guarantee that you will uh, experience the fullness of what God will do in Christ in the new heaven and new earth. It's the guarantee. It's the down payment. 
it, the word was actually used for like earnest. So if you've ever um, bought a house and you wanted to grab it, uh, you wanted to get it before somebody else grabbed it maybe, you sign a contract and you put down some earnest money, a down payment. And that payment says that the rest of the money's coming via the funding of my loan or, um, you know, that, so the money's coming. But I want, I want this now. It's a guarantee that this will be mine. And so same way, God's the one making the payment, but the Spirit is the down payment that we have this inheritance to come for the praise of His glory. And we receive all that by faith. Notice he says in verse 13, in Him, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed, you were sealed. So this seal, this promise, we receive the Holy Spirit when we believe. When we believe in Christ, the Spirit gives, or actually the Spirit gives us new life, uh, we have the Spirit um, through faith. So if, if you're not united to Christ, if you've never believed in Jesus, if you have not uh, experienced what it mo- means to be brought into his family as his son or daughter, if you've not had your sins forgiven by the blood of Jesus, by his death, as this passage says, if you haven't received the Holy Spirit, which is a promise for our eternity, then you can receive that by turning and trusting in Jesus. That's what he says. It's not automatic. It happens, we receive the gift through faith in Jesus. And you can put faith in Jesus today. You can trust him and say, I want to be the language of this passage. This is different salvation language than maybe we're familiar with. But it would be, I want to be with you, Jesus. I want to be united with you, uh, that I would be with you in the new heavens and new earth. I want you to be in me by the Spirit. I want my sins forgiven. I want to be in your family as your child with you as my father. That's the language of salvation here. And I want to be a part of your people, what you are doing in the world. Well, these early Christians lived in the shadows of Diana's temple, one of the seven wonders of the world. They lived with the pageantry of Caesar in their city where uh, everyone was required to say Caesar is Lord, worshiping Caesar as a deity. They lived under the influence and power of the vast Roman world like nothing that had come before it. And so what Paul is saying here must sound fantastical, that the God who made everything has chosen you, has become human to die for you, and now gives you his spirit. God lives in you for all eternity. This, this must have just blown them away. They've been called, he's saying, to something that is eternal. Listen, experts, commentators, scholars point out today that as grand as Diana's temple was, evidently there's just kind of one piece of it remaining today. You can see it. It's in a swampy area. The author I read, when they saw it, it actually had a stork's nest built on it. The ruins of Rome... Rome, the glory of Rome, it's like scattered pieces of marble. There's a few arches. You can go pay 15 bucks and get a brochure and tour them. But the living God is still moving on through his people with the gospel. And when all else has fallen, he will be reigning. What looks and feels so real and grand and powerful today, the headlines that shout at us the urgency of this political power or this nation or what's happening over here, it's all going to be a crumbled heap at the end of the day. None of it will last, but the Lord will rule forever. 
when he will come back and make all things new. So the story of what God has done in Christ for us, including us, is to drive us. It's to give us a new identity and a new purpose so that we live by grace for the praise of his glory. That's what this passage is about. I'm going to leave you with one thing. In his uh, commentary uh, on this book, Scotty Smith has done something with this passage, and I'm going to give you exactly what he did. He takes from the passage the statements that are true about us and then says, what would life be like differently if we lived with this in view? Instead of the story that our culture tells us about what we are as Christians or someone else has told us, what if we listen to God's word? So this is what he said. Here are the past blessings in this passage. The past gospel blessings in this passage. God chose me before the foundation of the world. These aren't self-help mantras. These are truths, whether you see them or feel them or know them. These are truths about you as a believer. God planned for me to become holy. God chose me to be considered blameless in his sight. God created me with the purpose of becoming his adopted child. There's some dignity. Jesus redeemed me at the cross, brought me back to belong to him. If I believed and enjoyed these past gospel blessings more often, I might. I might believe. I might give. I might feel. I might think. I might act. I might. You might what? present gospel blessings from this passage. All my sins are completely forgiven. You're not going to hear anything better than that today. I am an adopted child of God today, enjoying all those legal rights and personal delights. That's what we have in adoption, legal rights and personal delights. My father lavishes grace on me, constantly helping me more than I deserve. Your boss may not tell you that tomorrow, but that's the truth about you. By grace, I am growing in wisdom, insight, and understanding of the mysteries of God's will. If I believe and enjoyed these present gospel blessings more often, I might. Future. I have an honored place in the future of heaven and earth when God will make all things new and good again. God plans to complete his renewing work in me. This is my destiny. I will live with God to the praise of his glory. I will fully receive my inheritance as God's child. If I believe and enjoyed those future gospel blessings more often, what would my thinking be like? Finally, forever gospel blessings. My entire existence serves to glorify God who works everything to fulfill his will for me. By giving me the Holy Spirit, my Father has kept all his promises to me and guarantees that he will continue to do so. Now and forever, I praise God who is most glorious. If I believed and enjoyed these forever, more often, I might. Tim, if you'd join me and anybody else who's on the worship team, join me. We're going to close with those blessings in mind by receiving communion. You can stand together. Here's the reality, that all the blessings of God, past, present, future, and forever come to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the, he's the center of it all. So we are going to receive communion in just a moment to remember and to experience what he has done because what he has done has changed everything for us. And not only that, but it's changed everything for the course of the entire universe. 
People say, what's this world headed towards? This world is headed towards absolute subjection to Jesus Christ as its ruler and reigner over all. And that is because of his death and resurrection where he has been given the name that is above every name. So we're going to receive communion together in just a moment. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.